I think I can confidently say that origin stories have always been a popular kind of story. Going all the way back to origins of everything, the account in Genesis 1 and 2, the Gilgamesh epic, other, other accounts in almost every land, amongst every people of, of our origins. And more recently, people have been really excited about discovering and exploring the origins of other people and a phenomenon. Uh, for example, uh, The Hobbit is a story of the origin. How, how did this timid homebody Bilbo Baggins become the daring adventurer that we see in the Lord of the Rings books? Or, or those terrible Star Wars prequels tell us how, how did the most annoying teenager of all time become one of the greatest villains of all time? Even the minions got an origin story, right? And we may feel like we've seen all of them that there are. We, you know the backstory of the Avengers and the Justice League and the Starship Enterprise. But do you know the story of the epic beginning of the Board of Deacons? <laughs> I'd watch that movie. In a world where church meetings go too long, seven members must disguise. I can't. I've written suspense novels that have finaled in major awards. I can't even make that seem exciting. Okay, I, I mean, this, in, in the book of Acts, that's just chock full of narrow escapes and, and fights and snake attacks and, and riots and stonings. It sort of seems a little drab, a text like this. And yet, it is very important. And it has something to tell us about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be part of his church. Now, when we look at the origin of the diaconate, which is a group of people within the church, an office where people serve and care, this sort of ministry, it goes back, it seems, to being the solution to a problem, as, as many origins are in, in the church especially. And, and the problem stems from the Hellenists. The Hellenists are complaining about something to do with their widows. And before we even ask the question, who are the Hellenists? I think it's important to just acknowledge how wild it is that they're fighting, that they're not happy, that there's not unity, because that's the whole picture, the whole Ananias and Sapphira thing that we just looked at, notwithstanding, there has been unity, 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 all the way around Kumbaya, around the campfire from the beginning of the book of Acts until now. Despite persecution and trouble, they've clung to one another. Just look at Acts 1. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, with one accord, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Genesis, or Genesis, Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold to the apostles. And so we see that there is such great harmony, and now something is threatening the harmony. There's not unity. There's dissension. There's tension. Actually, maybe I would go see this 
movie. Now, you may have heard that the Hellenists, or, or even just assumed that, that they were the Gentiles, because the word Hellenist comes from the Greek word for Greek, and that the Hebraists were, or the Hebrews, rather, were uh, either one, actually, were, were the Jews. So you have the beginning of this Jew-Gentile divide, which will become a major uh, thing throughout the rest of the New Testament. But the fact is, this isn't Jews and Gentiles. Everyone involved in this seems to be a Jew who has converted to Christianity, and that seems like it would be an awful lot of common ground. But within that group, with all that they have in common, there are two subgroups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, or the, or the Hebraic, or sometimes called Palestinian Jews. So the, the Hellenists are those who are Greek-speaking and who are largely of Greek culture and mindset. you got to go back to what they call the diaspora, Starting in the 6th century B.C., people were going out and living outside of the land because there was an exile, and many people got quite comfortable there. And they began having synagogues, so we couldn't get to the temple all the time. We kind of put a little substitute for the temple in our community. And as that happens, all over what will become the Greek world and then the Roman world, we see people becoming less rooted in the Hebrew culture and the Hebrew language. And so those are the Hellenists. The, the Hebrews here, again, they're all is technically Hebrews, but what, what is meant by the Hebrews or the Hebraists is those who have always been in the land. As soon as they could come back, they came back. They speak Aramaic. They read and speak Hebrew and can sing and worship and listen even to a sermon in Hebrew. They, they are very much rooted in the, the culture that has always been, the traditions handed down. And perhaps they look down a little bit on their Hellenist counterparts. All the same. No, don't skip that, Zach. These Hellenistic Jews, they have come from all over the, the Roman world. And as they've come, I want to point out that there is a bit of a plight that many people couldn't relate to. Because they've, they come for one reason, and that is as they get older, husbands and wives tended, they didn't go to Florida like people do now, they would move to Jerusalem. Why? So they could die in Jerusalem. Why? So they'd be buried in Jerusalem, which was a high honor. Problem was, if the husband would die first, if he hadn't left enough for his wife to live comfortably, she, as a widow in that culture, would be in dire straits. She wouldn't have her family with her. Remember, they moved to Jerusalem to die. And so there wouldn't be anyone there to care for her in that way. And even with what was built into the temple system and the synagogue network to care for people, they weren't quite as plugged in to the predominant Hebraic Judaism of Jerusalem as they could have been. And so they struggled. Ideally, that should no longer have been a problem for those who had put their faith in Jesus and joined the Christian church. Remember, there's no shortage of charity funds there. People are selling and giving and distributing. And yet, there is still a problem. Now, in our world, we don't generally speak of widows as a group. I don't remember the last time I heard someone generalize about widows. But the Bible has an awful lot to say along those lines. Of course, we see widows and orphans often standing in for those who were most vulnerable in society, those who needed to be cared for and helped. If you were part of my uh, women in the church class, you saw uh, the, that widows actually 
shortly after the closing of the canon, becomes kind of a formal order within the church with their own duties and ministry that they carry out. And that shouldn't surprise us as we look in just the writings of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, we see widows are brought up again and again, and they're painted largely as being pious and generous and loyal, despite living lives of grief and poverty and exploitation. And in the ancient Near East, most were particularly destitute and defenseless. And so, of course, a a yardstick of whether religion was true religion or just a show from the Old Testament into the New is whether widows are being cared for or exploited. This goes right up into the New Testament. Of course, religion that is pure and faultless in the eyes of God the Father is this, looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. And so there was this Old Testament system for caring, but as the Christians were put out of their synagogues, they were cut off from that aid, and the church came in and stood in the gap. And yet, those with Greek tongue and Greek culture were apparently not getting their fair share of the alms on a weekly basis. I want to suggest this is probably not latent prejudice in the hearts of the people who are in charge, but rather just the existence of natural social networks that exist. You say, who, who can we help? And you think of the people you're closest to, or who are part of your circle, part of your immediate community. In fact, if last week I had randomly picked five of you and sat you down and said, listen, I've got some resources here, and I want them distributed to people who need them in our congregation. It's possible that you might have thought prayerfully about who can we help. You might have gone through an old church directory. You might have thought about where people sit or who you haven't seen in a while and come up with a list of names. And never once might it have occurred to you to think of the 40 Nepali Christians who are members of this congregation. Because 47 weeks out of the year, they meet apart from us and worship in a different language. And we don't see them, at least not a lot, week by week. It might just be as simply as far as out of sight, out of mind goes. But whether this is prejudice and preference or just an oversight, it needed oversight. It was still an injustice either way, and it had to be addressed. They needed intentional and systematic inclusion of those people who were being excluded. And so we see, oh, I've gotten to verse 1. Also, my watch isn't working today. Sorry. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, that's how it starts. See, this is all growing pains. It's almost a good problem to have. How do we feed all the people? There's all this, all this need because there's all these people who've come into the community and we have all these resources to help them. How do we do it? And as they grow, particularly into different populations, there are complications that come with this. I've found that there is often a cultural gap that I wouldn't expect as we've had uh, the Burmese church meeting here in our building now for eight years, as we've had a Nepali fellowship part of our congregation. I remember the first few times I tried to preach to the Burmese. They didn't have a pastor yet when they first came here. And I would preach and I would officiate, uh, administer communion, uh, do a lot of things for them. And there was a, a young lady who would translate for me. And I had a hard time getting into that rhythm. 
But I finally got to it, but she was just so good. Just without a thought, she would translate it. And she, she was a doctoral student at MSU. And she would tell me when I was saying something, it just wouldn't translate. There was a, a gap. And one time I had this whole sermon that was kind of building up to an illustration. A corny old illustration, but I thought it might be new because they just got here from Burma. This is the one where you talk about the, uh, the old Duncan Hines cake in a box, right? They formulated it, so all you had to do was add water, whisk it, throw it in the pan, put it in the oven. You got a beautiful cake, and it bombed. People didn't want it. And then they said, hmm, they did some focus groups. They talked to people. They reformulated it now. So you put in some water and an egg, and then you beat it, and then you pour it, and then you put it, and it sold like hot or like regular cakes. It sold like chocolate cakes. We still buy these things today. Why? Because people wanted to add their little contribution. And of course, my point was, we have that tendency in us too, right? We want to contribute to our salvation. We don't like that. It's just a gift. And, and we have this desire to, to be our own. But I, I start with this thing. And the translator looks over and says, yeah, we don't really make cakes. They're not going to get this at all. And I had, to, I had to kind of stop and pivot and, okay, come up with something entirely different. Now, sometimes you can catch it right at the beginning. Other times, even if you're technically speaking the same language, when there's a cultural divide, these things can slowly grow and there can be major problems. Now, many churches today never face this sort of challenge because they're not multicultural at all. Everyone looks the same, thinks the same, their lives are kind of the same. That's what drew them together to begin with. But the example we have in the book of Acts, starting with this church in Jerusalem at the center of it all, is that it's a, a microcosm of the city in which it's in. The body was made up of all sorts of people, and it was worth the little problems that arose from cultural differences to have a multicultural church. And if You've read the New Testament, you know these problems don't end here. In fact, as Gentiles begin to come in, they, they only increase. Read Ephesians, read Galatians. But yet the solution is never, you know what, break up into little monocultural uh, pods and wall yourselves off. That'll be the solution. So what is it that they say here? The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, quote, and let's talk about what they didn't say first. I want you to notice they didn't say, eh, widows, they're not that big of a giving block, according to my spreadsheets. Who cares? Don't worry about it. They didn't say, Hellenists? You kidding me? They don't speak Aramaic. They're worldly. They don't, they don't even read the scriptures in Hebrew. They read them in Greek. Why don't you go learn my language, then come and ask me for some food or some help. They don't say, why are you so focused on food and material things anyway when this is a spiritual group and we're all about spiritual things? Now, they don't, they don't do what so many prominent preachers do today and say, hey, if you want to complain, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I've got the vision for our church. And if you go against that, we'll throw you right off the bus. And notice that they don't just take a vote of everyone. Show of hands, who thinks the distribution to widows is going fine as is? Uh, 71%. Looks like you're outvoted. Robert's rules can be used to just squash a legitimate problem. I mean, granted, they are in the Bible, but oh wait, no, they're not. <laughs> and we see something vital here. What I was trying to tell these kids, in the church, 
everyone matters. You've turned to Christ and been baptized. You are a full member of this family. There's no second-class citizens. Those who are in the minority, these Hellenists, they matter. Those who are from foreign lands, they matter. The old people with blue hair and walkers matter. The young people with green hair and tattoos matter. If they don't, it's not the church of Jesus Christ. Or if it is, it barely is by the skin of its teeth. And it needs to repent in that congregation. Now the apostles know this must be addressed because it's important. But they also know what their calling is and what it is not. They're aware of what we've termed lately mission drift. The the notion that you can get so involved in so many different things that you lose sight of that one mission that you were called to, to begin with. It's like when uh, years ago Taco Bell started selling hot dogs, right? And, and it's like, no, Taco Bell, don't get off mission. You're supposed to sell Mexican food. No, it doesn't. You're supposed to sell that stuff that's made out of the same four ingredients, right? That's what we count on you for. And so they say, we, we're not going to start getting involved in the day-to-day of this. It would be taking us away from our calling, We need help. They delegate like Moses before them in the text that Christy read for us. I've noticed in modern times, pastors and elders being overwhelmed with charity work is often held up as an example of, look at how biblical, look at what a sign of a truly healthy church. You say, really? You spend 60 hours a week serving soup and sorting donations? And then you have to get, like, in the middle of the night, get up and write sermons and all these things, and you barely have time for anything, and your family doesn't even know you. You should come and speak at our pastor's conference. (laughs) The apostles saw things very differently. Now, I want to tell you it is certainly not, I want to emphasize, it is not that caring for widows was beneath them. Some trivial task. It's because it's so important and vital that they recognize we need help from people who are willing and able to do this. We need some deacons. The teaching alone is not sufficient in the church. So they, they set aside men who had the ability to help shepherd and care for the needs of the flock. And by trusting these seven to carry out this task, they show that a successful ministry is a team effort. It's not something that sits on the shoulders of One man, or even 12. Now, from the world's point of view, they should have probably tried to hold on to their power. Who's who's important from the world's perspective? Well, it's whoever's at the top of that pyramid, right? Important people have servants in the world. In the kingdom of God, the most important people, the greatest people, are servants. The greatest is the servant of all, according to Jesus. And the word deacon, by the way, simply means servant. You want to lead in the church? Get ready to serve. And what what they do here, the Greek word kathistemi, it means that they put them in charge of. You pick them, we will lay hands on them, we will put them in charge of this stuff. Or in the NIV it says, we will turn the responsibility over to them. Good translation. They're giving them responsibility. It's a position of service, yes, but also a position of authority. And it's servant leadership, not from a worldly point of view, like lead from the front, you know, so that everyone will be inspired by you and be more loyal to you. Rather, it's do what Christ did. Do what Christ did and serve even the least of these. And they serve just as much as the deacons serve. There's just a division of the service. 
In fact, it says, where it says it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, the word there is the diakonia of the word, the service of the word, the ministry of the word in order to wait tables. We're called to a different kind of service. So the 12, they've got the ministry of the word and prayer, and the seven, they've got the service of the tables. And this is in keeping with what we read throughout Scripture, 1 Peter 4. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this, this dichotomy of you do this, we do this, is not absolute. It doesn't mean I can't help my neighbor if she's in need. Oh, no, 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 I better not do that. Let me call a deacon. And it certainly doesn't mean that the deacons can't be part of the ministry of the word and prayer. In fact, the next time we see Stephen, the most prominent of these guys, the situation has him preaching before a large group of very influential people because he's on trial. And the next time we see Philip, another one of the seven, he's evangelizing. In Acts 21, he's called Philip, not Philip the deacon, but Philip the evangelist. He's got the gift of evangelism. He's the only one in the whole book of Acts called an evangelist. And so we don't want to put these hard and fast lines of, oh, I can't do that kind of service. Rather, I devote myself primarily to this thing I'm called to. Any pastor, I think, who says, I'm not going to mop, I'm the pastor. That's why we've got deacons. Or doesn't understand the servant leadership of Jesus Christ who tied around his waist a towel, got on his knees, and washed the stinking feet of his disciples. This is what he said about his uh, approach to these things in Luke 22, verses 25 to 27. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And we don't really like the sound of that. Remember when Peter was there about to get his feet washed by Jesus? And he said, no, no, I'll never, I'll never let you wash my feet. That can't happen. Did you ever notice that he doesn't say, give me the towel, I'll wash everybody's feet. No, his idea is everyone ought to be, we get some servants in here to wash our feet, to serve us. Man, he's learned a lot in these past few months, hasn't he? About leadership and about service in the kingdom of God. Look also at the requirements for these first seven deacons. I think they also are very beneficial for us to just think about in the church as we delegate things and as we volunteer to do things, as we uh, anoint and, and set apart and, and uh, ordain. It says, get seven Respected men from among yourselves, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Notice it's not particularly gifted administrators. Adept at Microsoft Excel with at least three years' experience at large-scale distribution of food. I mean, back then they used Lotus 1, 2, 3, but whatever. It's, it's a whole different set of requirements. And yet we often don't do that. We often go along the lines of, well, who's got the most skill from the world's point of view or the most influence? Oz Guinness, in one of his books, uh, talked about a friend of his who shared his faith with a Japanese CEO. 
And the guy was just not having it. He wasn't really, he was just kind of dismissive. And he said, it's odd to me that, that you're so dismissive because I've found you to be so open to different ideas and very, very open-minded and, and willing to listen. And he said, I'm sorry, it's just that I've noticed something. Whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. And whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. That kind of cuts to the core, I think. We need to be careful of how we elevate those to service in the church. Yeah, people have gifts, skills. People have all sorts of things that they can use to the benefit of the church. But first and foremost, godly people, godly people who are full of wisdom and full of the Spirit, respected among the group. When we most recently uh, brought two more elders onto the Board of Elders. It was Sean and Jonathan. Both of them have abilities in uh, financial type stuff. Jonathan works in the field. Sean's got experience with all these people under him, uh, working for the state, people reporting to him. I mean, there's a lot of, but you know what we talked about when we were discussing them as candidates and, and talking about bringing them to the congregation to present them? It was about their spirituality, it was about their hearts, it was about the fact that they are filled with wisdom and filled with the Spirit. So let's look at the the guys that they appoint. Verses 5 and 6. This pleased the whole gathering, by the way. Problem solved, for now. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. All seven of these names are Greek names. Every one of them. That does not necessarily mean they were all Hellenists. There were Greek names amongst the twelve, and they were all Hebraic Jews. In fact, most Jews at this time in this, in this world would have had three names. A Hebrew name, a Roman name, and a Greek name. But it is telling that all of them are identified by their Greek names. Or they are identifying themselves with those who had been wronged. And that's important. And we know that some of them, amongst them at least, if not all of them, were Hellenists. We know that Stephen, the most prominent of them, was. We're given a lot more information about him later. And one of them, Nicholas, is a proselyte, meaning as a Gentile who became a Jew by a process of joining Judaism. And he's from Antioch. Luke, himself a Gentile with a Greek name from Antioch thinks this is worth mentioning. And of course, Antioch will become the headquarters for the mission to the Gentiles as the book of Acts unfolds and the rest of the New Testament. And so they empower those closest to the problem rather than making a pronouncement from the top. Take a memo. We're going to be more fair now in how we distribute food. Done. No, they empower those who have been part of this situation and it has an unforeseen effect. You remember way back at the beginning, the, the whole kind of narrative of the book is laid out in the words of Jesus when he says, you will bring the gospel and preach it in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. Well, it's these two deacons, Stephen and Philip, who are given the next bit of attention, who actually transition us from just a Jerusalem church emphasis to now we're going out to Samaria and toward the ends of the world. How long would that have taken if only the Hebraic Jews, who were very closed off in their community, whose language wasn't understood by other people, had remained in charge 
had remained in control. We, we have now leaders who can speak the lingua franca of the day, who can, who can bring the gospel onto the Roman highways that, that go off to every corner of the earth and speak it in words that are understood by people everywhere. So with the laying on of hands and prayer, the whole story takes a little bit of a shift. Now, some have tried to make a case that this is not the origin of the diaconate, but they're uh, wrong. Um, <laughs> Bishop Lightfoot made a, a wonderful case for this, very step-by-step. Step. Uh, I would just say, at, at any rate, certainly this does become the diaconate, if it's not from the start. We see the emphasis on Greek-speaking Jewish Christians kind of fade away. We see the requirement that their male fade away as Phoebe becomes a deacon, and we have the requirements of, of deaconesses in 1 Timothy 3. But it all started here, and it all started from this situation. And notice where it ends, right back where we started, and in a good way. The Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Not only did this conflict not split the church, it didn't even slow its growth. The early church, like the church today, was never perfect. And yet, despite suffering and persecution and cultural divides and even sin in the church, which we saw last time, the church continued to flourish. And we see here priests converting those who were part of the system of bringing uh, continual sacrifices into the presence of God going, my whole role as a priest is obsolete. The one high priest, Christ, brought the one sacrifice in, once and for all into the presence of God and presented his blood in the heavenly tabernacle. And as they come to faith, oh, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for the church because it's going to rub the wrong way that counsel that we looked at that has been flogging and threatening and getting after the church. And still, the church grows. The number of the disciples increases. And notice that, that the agent in this sentence here is the Word of God. The Word of God continued to increase. The Word of God is at work. It's, it's active. The, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's increasing, it's spreading, it's multiplying. And we see here in the origin story of your local board of deacons that the Word of God does not return void. It is at work. And, you know, it, it moves out like ripples in a pond. One little thing happens here in Jerusalem, and before you know it, we got a, an official on the way back to the Queen of Ethiopia with the gospel. We've got a whole bunch of Christians now going out in all different directions because Stephen stood up and took a stand. It begins with something little. You don't have to change the whole world. God is at work. His word is at work. And we'll see the next major wave of the spread of the gospel coming not from the twelve, the apostles, but from the deacons, the servants, as the message goes out. Let us bear that in mind here at Judson Baptist Church. We don't have to be enormous and world-changing to the point where the news outlets come here and say, what do you got going on? Wow! Preaching of the Word? Clothing children? Taking the Lord's Supper? Faithful. Faithfulness. Wisdom full of the Holy Spirit. 
Ministry of the Word and prayer. These are the ordinary things that God uses to bring His, His kingdom into being. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the kingdom of God. We thank You for the reign of God. And we thank You, Lord, that it extends to the very end of the earth. And as we announce it, we pray that we would see your, your Word at work, Your Spirit at work, Lord, we pray that we would devote ourselves to whatever gift you have given us to serve. And that, Lord, we would not be afraid to say, I need to delegate, I need to ask for help, I need to give up responsibility or even authority. I need to do these things for the betterment of the church. Lord, we pray that our elders and our deacons would be filled with a desire not just to fulfill whatever uh, is outlined in our bylaws, but Lord, to be committed to the mission to which they're called. That, that the elders would be primarily about the ministry of the word and prayer. That the deacons would be about caring for those who are in need and suffering and making sure it is done in a wise, spiritful, and equitable way. Lord, we thank you for those that you call into your service. And Lord, let us never forget that all of us, if we are part of your church, are in your service. We are servants. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.